we continue this series on texts taken from the Oratorio Messiah, we come to Isaiah chapter 53. It is always the case that, that I come to preach the word of the Lord with a deep sense of inadequacy. It's, uh, Spurgeon said, said once, if you can do anything else, don't preach. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like that often uh, because there is such precious truth in God's word that I constantly fear lest anything I say take away from it. But perhaps uh, I feel that even more keenly uh, coming to this particular passage of scripture. Uh, so let's uh, be in prayer together even as we go through this text that the Lord will guide our thoughts. Let's hear then this portion of God's word for us this day. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is a piece of poetic prophecy, as you can see, and that does make it challenging in some ways to interpret. That accounts for some of the differences you may have noticed in the translations of this text. But I think we'll find, despite some minor disagreements perhaps in, in specific interpretations, I think we'll find this message very clear in the end. So let's open our hearts and minds to hear that. With that in mind, look at the first first questions, these rhetorical questions that were giving, given in the beginning of the text. As the prophet Isaiah, I think, speaks not just for himself, but for all those who would speak the gospel, who would proclaim God's truth. Who has believed? He uses the word there for belief that Jesus uses when he says, amen, amen. Sometimes translated truly, truly. You could almost say, who has said amen to our message? The term there translated here in my text, what they heard from us, literally it's the term for news. And indeed, it, it, would, it, would, not be, it would not be wrong, I think, to, to have in mind here the gospel itself, which of course we know from the New Testament is the good news. That's the word for the gospel in the New Testament, the good news. Who has believed? Who has affirmed, who has accepted the gospel, the good news? And the rhetorical nature of this question then assumes not many. It's not been received by many. Isaiah experiences that firsthand as a prophet, almost without exception. The messages of the prophets were rejected. There are just a few occasions where we have testimony from the Old Testament that, that people actually listened and responded positively to the, to the prophets, but most of the time their, their message was rejected. Tradition tells us that, that Isaiah was killed eventually for his message. Who has believed it? It's not believed by most people. And why is that? Well, well that, that would make a whole sermon, but I'm going to skip that. <laughs> but the answer is really given in the next line, I think. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now you see there a, a, a metaphor, a comparison being used, arm obviously here as a as a comparison for strength. So whenever you see that used in a metaphorical sense in Scripture, it's invariably to convey the idea of strength, power. To whom as the power, the strength, and he uses the covenant name for God there, Yahweh. To whom has the power of Yahweh, this God who made covenant with his people at Sinai, who is speaking through Isaiah, to whom has his power been revealed? 
people will not hear unless the power of the Lord is revealed to them. Paul talks in Romans, the beginning of Romans, about the gospel as the power of God for salvation. The words that are rejected by most people are powerful in the lives of those whom God reveals it to. Do you know the power of God's word today? I pray that you do. I pray that I do. I pray that we together will experience it even more fully, know it more, more clearly, and obey it more fully after we look at this passage. Well, really, beginning at verse 2 then, Isaiah gives us the message. Okay, what is the message that has been rejected? What, what, is, what is the embodiment of the power of Yahweh that is revealed to change lives? Now, we might have expected him to start talking about the mighty power of God shown when he delivered his people from Egypt, right? As he brought plague after plague against the Egyptians and their false gods, as he destroyed the, the, whole, the whole range of Egyptian gods and the power of the most mighty kingdom in, in the area at that time. I might expect him to, to talk about that. We might expect him to talk about the power of God that acted through ram's horns to bring down the walls of Jericho. We, we, we might think of the power of God is revealed in nature and in the incredible displays of power that we see there. But the power of God that will change your life is not revealed that way. It's revealed instead, Isaiah says, by one who grows up before him like a young plant. I, I did some research on that term there that's translated here, young plant. Now, perhaps some of you horticulturists know what a coppice is. Anybody here know what a coppice is? C-O-P-P-I-C-E? Well, you probably all know what a sucker is. <laughs> One of those sprouts that comes up out of a stump, okay, the power company cut down, uh, mandated that we cut down a couple of trees in front of the parsonage. And I, the stumps were there, and it had all these shoots coming up from it. I saved one for each one <laughs> to see if maybe the tree would regrow. But that's what he's talking about. He grew up like a little sucker coming up from a stump that had been cut down. Now, that reminds us of a passage in Isaiah, doesn't it? Anybody remembering that? Anybody remember that verse? How's it go? Yes, a shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse. A coppice, a sucker, doesn't, doesn't really look like much of anything. Another comparison, like a root out of dry ground, like, like a plant struggling to survive 
in ground that is dry. These people knew what that was like. They, they lived in an area that didn't get as much uh, steady rainfall as we do, so they knew what it was like to see a plant sprouting in the dry season, and you look at it and you think, I don't think that's going to survive. That's, this is the power of the Lord, okay? Hey, isn't that an ironic imagery of power? How is there going to be any power in weakness? These are really images of weakness, aren't they? A little sucker plant, a little plant trying to grow up in dry ground. They're symbols of weakness. But we do have that phrase that you don't want to miss, before him, and who's the him? Well, it's got to be God, right? So this weak, this little insignificant thing is before God, and that means we can expect good things from it, but not the things that ordinarily we would expect. Verse 2 goes on. He had no handsomeness, really, is what that's saying. He had no attractiveness of form. He wasn't good-looking. He had no majesty. The word there used is honor, majesty. He wasn't like somebody that this culture would think was worth emulating, worth giving any attention to. It's one of the drawbacks of video presentations of Jesus, by the way. They, they always can't resist the temptation to cast him as a good-looking guy, right? Usually Anglo-Saxon, because white people are going to be watching it. It's really sad, because scripture right here tells us he's an ordinary Jew. Probably darker skin than you. Black eyes, black hair, and not particularly good looking. And he had a big nose. He had no form, he had no comeliness, to use the King James, that we should look at him. Nothing to attract us to him, no beauty, no attractiveness that we should desire him. He's not one of the rich, the famous, the beautiful people, he's not one of the elite. And in fact, go on to verse 3. In fact, he, he wasn't even good enough to be ordinary. Because we're told that he's despised and deserted by humanity. If you're humanity there, not men. This is, this is everybody, women as well as men. So you, may, you think humanity there. Think everyone. Don't just think somebody else. He's despised and deserted. He's abhorred and abandoned. He's reviled and rejected. A person, a man of pains, literally that word is pains. A man who knew pains. And who knew, that is, was experienced with sickness. In fact, we shunned him. People turned their, turned their heads away. It was a repulsive scene. 
we counted him as nothing. That's what that last phrase means in the verse 3. We counted him as nothing. That's the one whom God uses to reveal his power. How do we explain that? Well, here's the explanation beginning in verse 4. Why did the Messiah, the anointed one, come as an ordinary, not particularly good-looking person? Why did he come to suffer, to experience pain, physical as well as emotional and spiritual? Well, here's the answer. Surely, certainly, without doubt, those sicknesses he had, they were ours. Those pains he endured, they were yours. He didn't deserve that. He didn't merit that. The sinless Son of God should have had a perfectly healthy and happy life. One without any trouble, without any travail, because he constantly followed the will of his Father. And yet... He suffered because he had taken our sicknesses, our pains. And look at the irony there in the last part of verse 4. And yet we considered him stricken, smitten by God, beaten down, literally there. More familiar term for us then afflicted, beaten down. That's what that means. The people who were around the cross considered Jesus as deserving of that punishment. And today, even today, outside of a work of God's grace, who wants a suffering savior. We don't want a weak hero. We, we don't want somebody who leads by serving. We want somebody who's going to beat down his foes, not be beaten down himself. So why is it that he has to undergo this? We'll look at verse 5. He was, he, we should pause there and say it again because the Hebrew text emphasizes the he here. He, he himself was brutally slain. I really think that's a little better translation there. Brutally slain because of our rebellions. There is a rebellion against God, but instead of slaying the rebels... God slayed his son, killed his son brutally. He was crushed because of our sins. The discipline, the corrective discipline, the punishment to bring about peace. And, and here, 
here remember this word peace is, is a lot bigger than our typical English word for peace. P the, the word for peace here means complete well-being. Okay, th this is a state of being in complete well-being, in harmony with God, in harmony with other people, in harmony with creation. Human beings had, had rebelled. And so they were not in peace with God anymore. They were suffering the consequences of that. And so in order for us to experience well-being, in order for us to be brought into a place of peace with God, he had to be punished. We're the ones that should have been disciplined to get back in line. But it comes on him and with his lashing, with his beating, with his whipping, we are healed. What a poignant irony here. As we're told that the power of God is manifested in one who took upon himself the punishment that should have been ours. And just to underscore the fact that the fault is ours and not his, look at verse 6, well-known imagery. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. There's not one person who has followed the right way. Jonathan Edwards said one of the best arguments for total depravity for not believing that people are born basically good is that nobody turns out good. Wouldn't you think if people were basic, born basically good, one or two now and then would turn out good? No, everyone has gone his own road, his own way. You've chosen your way. And Yahweh, the covenant God, has laid on him, on him has been poured out, is the imagery here. On him is poured out, has fallen on him the sins of us all. The scene continues in, in verse 7. He was oppressed. Think they're driven hard. Think of the lash of the oppressor on the slave. He was driven hard. He was beaten down. And he never opened his mouth. Like a lamb to be butchered, he was brought. Like a ewe before her shears. And he never opened his mouth. What incredible power, by the way, there. There is a strength and a power in being silent sometimes. By prison, by jail, or from prison, from jail, he was taken away. The image there is one of an unjust sentence. He was the one without sin, and yet he was treated as a criminal. 
And as for his generation, it's a little hard to understand exactly how to translate this because it's the, the, the sentence is sort of broken off. As for his generation, who considered or who thinks of it? This could be implying that no one in his generation cares that he's unjustly judged. It could mean that that no one has really thought about the significance of what happened to him. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He died, though death had no claim on him. As one who is sinless, Jesus never would have had to die. But he's cut off from the land of the living. Why? For the rebellions of my people. He was beaten. There's a little intimation of the gospel there, isn't there? And that little word, my. For the rebellion of God's people. He's the covenant God. Remember, he's been identified that way for us in the text. He's the covenant God whom you have rebelled against, and yet he, he takes upon himself the beating for your rebellion. And he made his grave with the wicked ones, but with a rich one in his death. I think it's best to preserve the plural and singular there the way it is. It seemed that his destiny was with the wicked, the grave with the wicked ones, but with a rich one in his death. And on this side of the cross, it's, it's easy to see the reference there to his being buried in the tomb of a rich man. But either way, that where you're buried doesn't, doesn't really count once you're dead, right? The significant thing is that he gave up his life, although no violence he had done and no lie was in his mouth. And now, with verse 10, we really get to the most profound part of this text. Because we're told that Yahweh, the covenant God, willed to crush him. He desired. In a certain sense, we can say with reverence, it pleased him to crush him. Not in the sense that he had any emotional delight in it, but in the sense that this was his will. He has grieved him, that verse goes on to say. And now... Now, for the first time, there seems to be a turning of a corner. There in verse 10. When his soul made an offering for guilt, I think we we have in the first part of the verse, okay, this is the Father's will, Yahweh's will to crush him, but we see the cooperation of the Son, the obedience of the Son in the second part of the verse, I think, 
we translate it, his soul made an offering for guilt. His very person made the offering for guilt. And, and here's the positive note that we see come in at this point. He will see his children. He will prolong his life. In defeat and death, Jesus rises again, and he sees his children. What's the significance of that? Well, his children, of course, are those for whom he died, right? Jesus' death is not meaningless. It's not purposeless. It's not, he was not a victim in the sense that we usually use that word. He was in control from beginning to end. He chose exactly when he was going to die. And that was for the sake of his children. And because of that, he will prolong his life. Look at the next verse. The will, there's that word again. The will of Yahweh, okay? God willed to crush him. Now we're told, the will of Yahweh in his hand, and when you see a metaphor with hand like that, that usually has reference to work, to something somebody's accomplished. So the will of Yahweh by his work will succeed. So you see that will of the Father to crush the Son had a purpose beyond that. God is not a masochist. He's not sadistic. There's nothing good in and of suffering itself. That's not what is being said here, but it's saying that the will of Yahweh, his purposes, will succeed because of the work that Jesus has done in his death. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see, what, what's he going to see? Well, he's going to see those children in the previous verse, don't you think? Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. Jesus suffers not for the sake of suffering. There's, there's no merit in seeking suffering for the sake of suffering. From time to time, people begin to get the idea that there's some merit to afflicting yourself. There's absolutely no merit to afflicting yourself. But he suffered for a purpose, and he's satisfied, that is, he has accomplished that purpose, and what is it? Look at the next line. By his knowledge, he will justify or make righteous. Who is it that does that? It's the just one, the righteous one, my servant. Suddenly we realize this is God speaking, right? The righteous one will make righteous. The just one will make just, will justify many. See that in that verse? Many. There is an innumerable multitude in John's vision revelation of those made righteous by Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Don't ever think that there's not room for you. Because Jesus 
righteous sacrifice atones for many. How has he done that? Look at the next line. Their sins, he himself, there's another place in this chapter. We see three, three different places where the he is underscored because he wants to make sure we don't miss the fact that this is something that he does. By their sins, he himself will make his burden. He has taken the sins of his people and he has made them his burden. If you're a thinking person, you know what it is to be burdened with sin. If you have anything of a conscience at all, you know what it is to be burdened by guilt. And the good news says he takes that burden, all those burdens, on himself. And so we come to this wonderful climax in verse 12. Again, this is God speaking. You can tell by the use of the first-person pronoun, right? Therefore, on the basis of what has come before, remember, therefore, you always ask what it's there for, what's there to point to what's come before, on the basis of what he has done in his suffering, I will portion out to him. The, the language here is the language of, of warfare. I will divide out to him, I will portion out to him the many. It can be translated the great there, but I'd like to translate it many because we had many in the previous verse. <laughs> Same word in Hebrew. By his victory and his suffering and death, Jesus gained the spoils. He got the trophies. He got the booty. And you are those spoils. <laughs> You're the many he died for. That's what the text is saying here, right? He accomplished the victory, and you're part of his spoils. New Testament writer will picture Jesus leading a great victory procession in which all of us follow as the spoils of his victory. The strong he will portion out as the spoils of victory. Again, there is that idea of Jesus absolutely victorious, conquering all, and getting the spoils of that victory. For he poured out in death his soul, and with the rebels was counted. He himself, again that emphasis on the he, the sin of many, that many we saw earlier, took from them. And for rebels, he will intercede. Have you believed the message? Have you believed the message? Have you seen in Jesus Christ the one who bore your sins? The one by whose righteous work made you righteous? If that's the case, then 
this is you in these closing lines, isn't it? You are those whose sin was born by him. And you are one that he makes intercession for right now. The writer of Hebrews talks a lot about about that intercession. We don't have time to look at all the passages, but let's at least look at a, a couple of those. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Here's one of the many benefits that we have gained. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in whose in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You have a perfect intercessor because he knows exactly what it's like to be a human being and to struggle with the temptations that you struggle with. So when he intercedes for you, he knows exactly what you're going through. The difference, of course, is that he did not sin. But he suffered nonetheless. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. The one who intercedes for you knows what it is to Pray to plead with the Father. And we're told, he goes on to say, he was heard because of his reverence. Do, do you catch what was just said there? Jesus, with loud cries and tears, to, prayed to the one who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his reverence. But he died. <laughs> What, what, what are we to make of the fact that he's heard because of his reverence? Well, because physical death wasn't the end. His prayers are heard because, well, we overheard them in the garden, didn't we? The Garden of Gethsemane. As over and over again, Jesus prayed, Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Jesus' prayers were heard because he prayed for the will of the Father. And that will was to accomplish your salvation. So you have one interceding for you who has given his life for you. He's not only the priest, but he is the sacrifice. We see that in Hebrews 9. Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Not like the high priest on this earth, but he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You have one interceding for you who has secured for you eternal redemption. There is nothing that can take you from him. So what's our response to be? 
Well, it's to rejoice in what he has done for us, right? Therefore, brothers, Hebrews chapter 10, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, by his life and death, he has opened the way for you into the very presence of God. Since we have a great high priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. The one who intercedes for you wants you to have a full assurance of faith because you know that he did it all. There's nothing left for you to do to accomplish your salvation. There's nothing for you to contribute. He's done it all. Your response is simply to believe what he has done, to hold fast that confession, as he goes on to say. You've come, he tells us, to a new covenant to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have an intercessor who has brought you into covenant relationship with God, and that covenant cannot be broken. The promises of God cannot fail, so your salvation is assured. I'll close with this. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself... I love the way he emphasized the he there. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You have been united by faith with him in his death, so you are united with him in his life. You are able through his work and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, not to sin. <laughs> In Christ, you can live to righteousness. You couldn't do that outside of him. You could not live to righteousness outside of Christ, but he has taken your sin, he has made atonement for those sin. He has given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you his word so that you can live to righteousness, so that you can live to his glory and his good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we want together to thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the one who died for us so that we might live. Enable us, Lord, to experience that day by day. We know this is a process as well, that we need to daily die to sin, that every day we need to put to death that within us which is ungodly. And we depend upon your strength to do that. Thank you that in you and in your strength we can live to righteousness. We can, we can seek to do your will for your glory. We will certainly give you all the praise for doing that. In Jesus' name, amen.